You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel. Um, Something that God's been teaching me recently, and maybe you're feeling the same thing, is that there are few things more dangerous than a false sense of security. Our world is like wrought with insecurity these days, doesn't it? It seems that way. Like, what do I say next? How do I walk securely as a Christian? What if I blow it? Those questions are hardly academic. Um, Here's a few examples from my newsfeed. Should the church just preach the gospel, or should we work actively to reform a crumbling culture? Should we pray God's will be done from our living rooms, or should we pursue justice in the city square? Should we stand on timeless truths, or should we venture into the conversation at the risk of being misunderstood? What do I do? What do I not do? What do I say? What do I not say? How do I know if I'm right with my neighbor? How do I know if I'm right with God? So I don't know if you've been asking those kind of questions. I hope you have been. Um, I have been, and God is showing me that they're way tougher than I would have ever thought, Um, and that there is really nothing more dangerous than a false sense of security. So if you've been following with James these past four weeks, you know that in his short but really strong letter, James is leading us on a trail. And I don't want to force the metaphor, but if trails could be characterized as like easy, moderate, and rigorous, James is on the rigorous side. It's clearly marked not for the faint of heart. Um, Partly because of the range of terrain that James covers. We've said he's intensely practical. He talks about all kinds of stuff. But also because of how quickly the terrain changes. You've already gotten a feel for that. It's jarring sometimes. James is building and building, climbing and climbing, and he wants us to see something. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 14, where we're going to start this morning... It's like James has brought us to one of those breaks in the trail that's like an overlook. We've, we've climbed a good bit, and we're starting to feel the pain that comes with, with going up. Now, there's a bend in the road just up ahead, and we can almost look back to see where we've been. The view is about to become incredibly clear and honestly breathtaking, but for a reason that you might not be ready for. James wants to show us the path thus far, reflect on where we've been, and draw some conclusions. So the crux of James's words this morning surround this question, and here it is. What do you do with somebody who says that they're a Christian, but there is zero evidence? They're really secure, but is that security false? And so almost like as if he's a lawyer, James invites four imaginary scenarios. He creates four embodiments of this idea of faith, two negative and two positive. And so this morning, I want to walk through all four of these scenarios together and then challenge you to imagine what this image of faith might mean for you. And each one of these scenarios, they all point to the exact same thing. And here it is. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. So let's dive in. Scenario number one, verse 14. Here we go. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so there's scenario number one, this benevolent well-wisher who cannot work for the good of his brother or sister. So James starts off by asking a few questions, and the first are almost jarringly short, and then the last one is longer. So let's look at these questions for a minute. James asks, he says, what good is it? And this is James essentially saying, what does it profit you, or how does this benefit you? He's asking you to think about this. James is leading with these rhetorical questions, and he's invoking this category of ancient rhetoric that we actually still practice today. So a little bit of cultural history for you, so you understand where James is coming from. In James's day, there was a group of people, a class of people called the intelligentsia. Okay, and the intelligentsia, this group of people that were kind of like pop philosophers, moral teachers, ethicists, and influencers. Um, and so through public speaking, writing, and even poetry, these people wanted to move their society toward a better moral future. So think about the intelligentsia almost like university professors, musicians, counselors, poets, all rolled into one. And the way that this group would gain a following, if you were a part of this group, um, is in a public setting, you would ask reflective questions, like James does here. And so it'd be kind of like a personal trainer today saying, hey, I see that you want to lose weight, I see you want to become more healthy, but I also see that empty pizza box. How's that going for you? And so by asking you the reflective question, it's, it's prompting you to think about it. So true to form, James is meeting an issue head on. So what's the issue? It's this distortion of the gospel that says you can be a Christian, but never seek the good of your brother or your sister. It can be a completely private thing. And so James raises these questions as if to say, how's that working for you? Is that any good? Now here's what I want us to see um, in these questions. While these questions are rhetorical, they are not hypothetical. James is a real pastor of a real church in a real city, and so these questions come out of his context, and they're just as relevant for our context today, 2,000 years later. He's inviting us to consider something that, while initially does not seem too invasive, gets really uncomfortable the more we think about it. Here's what I mean. What good is a church filled with people who are annoyed by their neighbors? What good is worship if it comes from a heart that's bitter or angry or cynical or reluctant? What does it benefit somebody to get saved, to raise their hand, to walk an aisle, to get baptized, but then they live under their own authority? The person in this first scenario says, like, yeah, I'm all in. Like, look, Jesus, church, yay, I'm all in. Like, I take the kids on Sunday, but the other six days are mine. I give 10%, but the other 90% is mine. Like, if I say the right things around the right people, I'm good, but my life is still my life. Do not expect me to go above and beyond. And so this opening section, this opening scenario, concludes with a really strong statement that's just straight James. He says, so also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Now remember we started out by saying there's nothing more dangerous than a false sense of security. This is what I mean. James is taking on the unpleasant but very necessary pastoral task of alerting his hearers and thereby us to some bad news. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. So scenario one, very horizontal, earthly relationships. And now James goes 
vertical. He imagines a second scenario. Let's look in verse 18. He says, well, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, that got kind of dark, didn't it? Right? Like, so James is being intentionally ironic here and I want to make sure that you see it. James is alluding to this passage in the Old Testament called the Great Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6, and here's what it, what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's called the Great Shema, and it's, it's the most important prayer in Jewish theology, in Old Testament theology. It's the most important prayer that you can ever pray. It's all over Jewish culture. Rabbis expect observant Jews to actually recite that twice a day. It's the first prayer that you learn um, in, in Hebrew school. Parents teach it to their children. It's the last thing that families say together before they go to bed at night. And so by alluding to this prayer, the great Shema, our Lord is one, James is summarizing. He's basically saying all the theology that you need, all the theology that you've memorized, all of the good things that you know about God. As the Old Testament unfolds, God's biggest concern with his people isn't that they know the right stuff. Isn't that they can recite the right stuff or they've memorized the right stuff. We see this, the prophet's main job is to say, you may know it, but you don't know it. Like you don't do it. There's a disconnect. Your lips are moving, but you don't mean it. You're doing the right things, but you don't love me. You've got the most perfectly articulated theology, but it hasn't changed you. And it's like God saying, you know everything there is to know about me but you don't know me. So James picks up on this idea sarcastically and says, hey, at least the demons have a reaction to God. When they think about the goodness and the, the oneness and the power of God, their reaction is they shudder. At least they have a reaction. I want you to consider something for a second that's probably going to be a little off-putting. Demons are among the world's most orthodox theologians. Do you know who knows the doctrine of substitutionary atonement better than anybody? The enemy. Do you know who is more certain of the inerrancy of God's word than anybody? The enemy. Do you know who's more certain that Jesus is coming back? The enemy. Do you know who fears the cross more than anybody? The enemy. And so James is passively asking his readers a question hidden in this really dark imagery. He says, how is your faith any different than a demon? How is your relationship with God, your standing with Jesus, how is that any different than the enemy's? That is a very uncomfortable question because it takes all that theology, right? All those discipleship courses, all those filled in binders where all the blanks are filled in, all those sermon manuscripts, all that spiritual activity and involvement, quite a resume, right? And flushes it. He's saying the sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. So that's the second scenario. Third scenario. Now James is building his case. And after two negative examples of this fake faith, he's ready to go positive. So he turns the coin over. But first he asks another incredibly biting question in verse 20. He said, do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Like there's something terribly selfish and ungospel inside of us that says, what's the least I can do and be a Christian? Like what just gets me out of hell? What gets me across the line? And James adds his voice to this like, millennia-long biblical drumbeat that says sincere faith doesn't ask what's the least I can do to get by, but how can I make the most out of what God has given me for his glory? 
And so who does James bring for evidence? His third scenario, this first person is not a surprise. Remember, James is writing to a Jewish audience. So thinking back over their shared Jewish cultural history, there's only one person who stands out as the ultimate figure of sincere, active faith, Abraham. So here's what he says. Look in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham's story has the fingerprints of faith all over it. Here are the highlights. Let me just summarize them quickly for you if you don't know. So way back in the Old Testament, Abraham meets God for the first time in Genesis 12. He's 75 years old. And God just appears to him and says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham goes, okay, like where? And God goes, I don't care. Just start walking. I'm going to show you. And so at 75 years old, Abraham packs up his family, all his stuff, and he just starts walking. He puts it all on the line because he trusts God. And then a little while later, God wakes Abraham up in the middle of the night and he brings him out of his tent and he leads him. He says, look up at the stars, Abraham, if you can count them all. He says, your family is going to be like that. I'm going to do something amazing through you. You just got to trust me. And Abraham's like, I'm over 75 years old. Are you kidding me? But he says, you know what? I believe you. He put it all on the line because he trusts God. And then the text and the episode and the scene that James references here, when God asks him to offer up one of those stars, his son, as a sacrifice. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 22. It's an amazing story. And Abraham goes, Okay, God, here we go. And so they're walking up Mount Moriah. And, 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 and when Isaac, his son, gets suspicious and he goes like, hey, Dad, like we're walking up to here to worship. Where is the offering? Abraham says, God himself will supply the lamb, which is like super prophetic word about Jesus. Like what a good foreshadowing of this one day sacrifice that's going to be coming. And you can read how that turns out, Genesis 22. Anyway, Abraham puts it all on the line because he trusts God. And so at this point, James's audience is like, yes, Abraham, we love him. Like, this is the guy. He's our father, Abraham. He's our hero. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. But then James drops this theological bombshell on him in verse 24. Here's what he says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, that should set off huge red flags in your head. Like, didn't we just do a sermon series called Solas where we said we are justified by faith alone? And doesn't Paul talk about that? Like, this is the big cornerstone of our faith. And is James just undoing all that? How does this fit? And we're going to come back to this in just a minute. I need you to hang on. Um, hit pause on verse 24. We're going to circle back to it. But we need to continue because James hasn't even done the hardest thing yet. This fourth scenario is even tougher. So James throws his readers the ultimate curveball. His fourth scenario is someone they would have never expected, Rahab. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, we talked about Rahab this last November in a sermon series called Vintage Faith. And you can go back and listen to it or watch it or whatever if you, if you want to. Um, if you don't remember, here's Rahab's story. Rahab is a pagan, idol-worshipping prostitute. 
She is a pillow-talking opportunist. She loves to know what's going on, but when she hears that God is on the move, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is on the move, and he has his sights set on her city, it's like a light switch flips on in her heart, and she welcomes these two messengers, Israelite spies, brings them into her house, which is tantamount to treason, And while there's a search party for these spies right outside her door, she has the spiritual conversation with them. And her barely budding faith, her beautiful, simple confession leads to bold action. She she shelters these spies and sends them out another way. That's super incredible because there again you see it. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. And here's what's great about these two examples that James puts out here. Abraham and, and Rahab, they're complete opposites of each other. This is such a good gospel truth for us to hang on to. A- a- Abraham, this father of Israel, like their George Washington, the most righteous man in all of history. And then Rahab, a woman, a foreign woman, a foreign woman caught in the most unrighteous profession imaginable. And James has the boldness to offer them both up and say, look, you want to know what a sincere faith looks like, how to walk securely as a Jesus follower? Here's two examples for you. These two. The sincerity of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. Now, before we move into what we're supposed to do with this text, because it's a heavy one, we've got to square with something. What is with verse 24? Because James has now said it like three times. If you didn't catch it, Here's what he said back in verse 17. He says, So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then at the end of verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. So what do we we do with this? Here's the issue. On the face of this, this flatly contradicts Paul. Paul writes to the Roman church, Romans 3.28 says this, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's like, what? Ephesians 2, right? By grace are you saved through faith. This not a result of works. But then here's James seemingly saying the exact opposite. So how should we count for this disparity? So two things we need to consider. First, we need to consider their audience. Okay, let's take Paul first. Most of us are more familiar with Paul. So Paul worked among, planted churches with, and wrote to people who were coming out of a pagan polytheistic background. They're Gentiles. They had no idea what it meant to be right with God because they had no concept that God could even be personal. And so when they heard the gospel message coming from Paul that lost people can be saved, their immediate knee-jerk reaction is, I am overwhelmed by the fact that I'm a sinner. What more can I do? What can I do, Paul? How can I, how can I show God that I'm, that I'm devoted to him? If you can imagine this today, this is somebody who's so overwhelmed by the weight of their sin that they desperately need to hear that God loves them and provides them free salvation through Jesus. So what more can I do? Paul answers it. He says, nothing. Jesus did it. You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. He loves you. So to put it like one communicator says it, Paul says we cannot climb the ladder into heaven, rather God lifts us up to it. So to people who are overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, Paul offers assurance. Well, James has a different audience, okay? He has a different audience with a different problem. 
Again, he's writing to Jewish readers who throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament take pride in their spiritual heritage as the people of God, the ones who received the word of God. And they took those things and said, these pretty much guarantee God's favor in my life. I can't screw up. God's got it. So put in our context today, this is somebody who says, look, I'm a decent person. I don't sleep around. I love my family. I don't cheat on my spouse. I attend church. I believe all the right stuff. Get off my back. And James' message for that person is, prove it. I want to see it. If you're trying to show off your mega spirituality, it means you're probably not saved. Get humble. Where Paul offers assurance to those overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, James offers introspection to those who assume God's favor and minimize their sin. Now, this may help to understand where they're coming from, but what do we do about the doctrinal issue? Because the text still says justified by works. Well, so here's the second consideration we need to have. Consider how Paul and James view justification differently. Okay, Scripture will never contradict Scripture. It's one of the rules of Bible interpretation. But Paul and James are looking at justification with different lenses. So put your theological hats on because we're about to wade into some uh, very deep but very beautiful water. Justification, the act by which a sinner is declared righteous before a holy God. Here's the issue. Are we declared righteous based on what we do, James? Or are we declared righteous based on what Jesus has already done, Paul? And here's the fun part. They're both right. Paul and James see justification in two different but complementary perspectives. Here's how. Paul sees justification as this like ultimate legal forensic declaration, while James sees justification in this immediate practical life-on-life sense. Let's take Paul first. Justification is, in its fullest sense, a future event. It's something coming for Christians. Here's how this works. The New Testament teaches that one day Jesus is going to return and everyone will face judgment. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. When he writes, he says, For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due. That means on my last day, on the last day, my righteousness will be called into question. And that should freak me out a little bit. Because unless my sin has been covered and hidden and washed away by the blood of Jesus, I'm counting on my righteousness, and that doesn't cut it. I need to be pronounced justified. How am I going to do it? And then here's the gospel. If a guilty sinner like Brandon Marshall places my faith totally in Jesus' finished work on the cross as the atoning sacrifice of my sin, his righteousness is given to me. And so when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see my sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness. That's the doctrine of imputed righteousness. And it's one of the best things about the gospel. I am free And so then finally, on the last day, when I stand before judgment, I am legally declared righteous. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. My faith in Christ's work. So that's justification in this ultimate legal forensic sense. That's Paul. But there's also another way to see justification that's immediate and practical. And this is the angle that James is concerned with. Here's how James is thinking. Okay, let's make sure we're tracking. If somebody says they've been made right with God which I'm guessing is most of you watching this morning. Most of you are going to go, I'm a Christian. I've been made right with God. I have nothing to worry about. Say they place their trust, everything in what Jesus has done. Everything I just said about Jesus on the cross, you're like, yeah, 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 I get it, all right? But their life never changes. James asks, 
Are they really justified? And James's conclusion is that's ludicrous. You cannot see if Christianity is real until it changes your life, until your life actually shows something. The works that James has in mind here by using Abraham and by using Rahab and imagining this are evidence that saving faith is already at place in somebody's life. The good deeds flowing from faith vindicate us. They declare to the world that we belong to Christ. Here's James's point as succinctly as I can put it. We are saved by faith alone, but if faith is alone, it isn't actual faith. It's pretending. It's a window dressing. It's behavior modification. It's just being nice. And James says, that's not how we do this. If faith is alone, it's not real faith. Good works do not save our lives. They explain our lives. I'll say that again because it's super important. Good works do not save our lives. They explain our lives. So, quick illustration for you. Um, I asked them if I could share their story, and they, they said it's cool with it, so um, I'm going to embarrass them. But hey, since we're all like digital and looking at screens, it's a little bit different. So some of you know uh, JJ and Lisa Robertson. Uh, JJ and Lisa are friends of ours. They're members here at North Canton Chapel. They've adopted two boys to round out their family of five, and their adoption has been like bumpy and crazy and awesome, like highs and lows the whole way of both their boys. But by God's grace and by their courage... Rhodes and Bo, these two awesome dudes that now live with them, are officially Robertsons. And I know several of you have walked with them along that journey, and we encourage them. And it doesn't matter if it's people here at North Canton Chapel, guys on JJ's work crew, people they grew up with, their family, everybody has the same thing to say. Way to go. Like, way to go, guys. Well done. Why? Because adoption is admirable. It's a noble thing to pursue. It's really cool, right? And it's, it's really, really hard, but it's a good thing to do. And I know that's the story with so many of you who have walked that journey here at the North Canton Chapel, whether it's foster care or adoption, like several families have walked that journey. And you have the same kind of response. You're like, Man, way to go. That's just so cool. But beyond all the warm fuzzies and the way to goes, all the attaboys and that stuff, here's the thing that I love the most, especially about how JJ and Lisa talk about their story. If you've ever heard them explain why they chose that, like, why would you invite that emotional roller coaster into your life? Why would you go through that journey? Why, why invite that stress? Like, ugh, what led you to pursue this? If you've ever heard them tell their story, I've heard them tell it dozens of times. It's the exact same answer. And it's always the same. And here it is. We did this because it's what Jesus did for us. Period. Like, it's that simple. We did this because it's what Jesus did for us. Good works don't save our lives. They explain our lives. And if James were here, if he was a pastor in Stark County at 2020, what would he say? He'd say, don't tell me you're a Christian because of what you know or what you believe. Show me you're a Christian by what you do about it. And guys, if there's one thing our world needs right now, it's Christians more than ever. Christians who have been obsessed with the idea that now they have to do something because of how good God has been to them. So where do we go from this? four implications that we need to take from this text. And I want to run through these. I think um, I want to encourage you, if you are taking notes or whatever, or if you got your phone out, write these down because these are things that I want to encourage you to go back and, and wrestle with, okay? Or if there's one that speaks to you personally and you're watching on Facebook, give it a thumbs up, give it a heart, or, or if you're angry about it, give it the little angry thing over there. That's cool. Implication number one, you have something to do. You have something to do. To do, not like Christians do, 
you do, specifically. And I know that because your heart is still beating. You're still here, which means God has a purpose for you. He's not done with you. But I believe something else about you. I believe that you're scared to death to actually do it. You have something that God wants you to do. It's in the back corner of your mind. You probably can feel it more than think about it, and it scares you to death. So let me light your fire a little bit. The enemy does not get nervous when you know something about Jesus, but he hates it when you actually do something that's born out of that belief. Because when you start acting on what you know, God changes what you see. You want to start praying a really dangerous prayer? Here it is. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, bring revival and let it start with me. Because when you start praying like that and really meaning it, God's going to open your eyes to things you've never even dreamed about. Deeper pains, richer joys, meaningful burdens, and a more intentional life. You have something to do. That's the first implication. Implication number two. You need Jesus to help you discover it. Now, here's the deal. I've been in this text all week, and so you guys are getting like my 30-minute explosion on Sunday morning or Wednesday. What do you need to do? You feel the weight of, of, of the words here. You hear James go like, oh, and it rests on your shoulder. And like, here we are going, what do you want to do with this? Like, okay, pastor, what, what now? Here's the rub. I can only take you so far. I can't say, you know what you need to do? You need to spend 10 minutes every day in the word of God. Because as soon as I say that, I've created a bar that you can meet and then check it off your list. I can't say, you know what you need to do? You need to be more generous. God says give away 10% of your income. You need to start there. And you're going to go, eh, 10%. I think I can get there. But the truth of the matter is, like, the Holy Spirit may want you to give more. He may want you to be in the Word more. I don't know what that is for you. You have to take the initiative. You have to own it. You have to start. Like, I'll support you and the rest of our staff at North Canton Chapel. We're with you. Like, we're going to encourage you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to listen to you. We'll help you think it through. But here's the tension that I and every thoughtful pastor lives with. I cannot prescribe something for you. And this is where James is almost unhelpful. The worst thing I could do for you as your pastor is tell you exactly what God wants you to do because that robs you of the joy and the greater work of learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. But the best thing I can do for you as your pastor is to not to prescribe something, but to describe something and point you directly to God because when he changes you, when he calls you, when he equips you, then he gets the glory and not me or you or anybody else. That's what Peter meant later when Peter writes this. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Your life, hear me on this one, your life transparently lived among the lost is the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. You have something to do. You need Jesus to help you do it. And then three, implication number three, what you do will always outweigh what you say. Oh, I hate that one. What you do will always outweigh what you say. I'm willing to bet that the majority of us watching right now have a social media account, okay? Or, um, or at least you know someone who has, or at least you've been in a conversation about tough topics recently. And I'm not going to illustrate them because there's too many of them. Pastor Dave, Pastor Dan, they both talked about this, so let me raise it up again. 
Are you feeling the pressure of what to say? Are you feeling the pressure of what not to say? What to post and what not to post? Spoiler alert for those who haven't figured it out yet, you are not going to win the battle of rhetoric in the public sphere because your words are better than anybody else's. Guys, here's where the church has something that the world wishes they had. We have God's better way of doing this. Listen to what James says here. He's giving us a better way to change our world. Shut your mouth and do something is what James is saying. Don't be that hypocritical Christian. Don't just talk. Have you ever noticed how it's just like empty noise and static anyway? It never goes anywhere. James says, let the word of God live inside of you. Let it change you and then do something about it. Somebody once asked Jesus about this once and Jesus' response absolutely blew his mind. And it's the same reason why it's frustrating for us today. Somebody asked Jesus, okay, God, we're okay, Jesus, what does God expect from me, right? What do I have to do? And Jesus says, you know it, it's simple. Love God, love your neighbor, period. And the guy's like, mm, does not compute. Like, it's that simple. But the problem is we don't want to make it that simple. We want to make it more complicated. We want to invent like slick sounding slogans and we want to conflate that with well-reasoned and well-articulated political positions. And you ever notice, they don't go anywhere. Why? Because they're not you. Be changed by theology. Don't just articulate it. So, these are getting a little bit hotter. I get it. Third one, you all what you do will always outweigh what you say. And then here's the fourth one. And this one's going to come out a little strong. We should offer our world the very best. We should offer the world our very best. I want to let you in on a secret. The world needs something from you. But they actually don't need something. They need someone from you. But so many Christians never get around to talking about the someone because it's so easy to talk about the thing. I'm dancing around an issue, so let me speak very clearly. The world does not need your Jesus statues. They need your Jesus. The world does not need your Christianity. They need your Christ. If your mission is to convert people to your opinion, you are not following Jesus. My opinion, as well-informed as I try to be, <laughs> At the end of the day, it's just that. It's my opinion. It is never the best thing I can offer someone. A lost world deserves better than my opinion because what we end up doing is we offer the good at the expense of the best. And what a lost world in chaos hears from you is, here, this is the best thing that I can offer, my opinion. Really? Repent of choosing the wrong battle and seeking short-sighted victories. A broken world deserves our best, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves humanity and broken and jacked up as we are, that despite our rebellion and sin, God made a way through faith in Jesus, that we can be made new and then sent into the world to extend his message of reconciliation, that our past is forgiven, our present makes sense, and our future is secure. Praise God that he gave us his best, and shame on us if we don't do the same. Our world deserves our best. So, grace proclaimed versus grace demonstrated, right? Prayer from the living room or action in the public square. Do we stand on the truth or do we enter into the conversation? Yes, both. The greatest and hardest truth that James wants us to see here this morning is that the thoughtful, courageous, secure Christian doesn't say or, they use or as little as possible. They say and as often as possible. The security of your faith is shown by the activity of your life. 
Let me pray for us. Father, this is a hard, hard text. It's hard to sit with because I know it's just, there's so many places in my life that are rough edges. There's blind spots. There's things I don't want to acknowledge. It's easier just to keep cruising. But I feel like you've brought us to this spot where you're asking us to be introspective. And the more we look deeper inside ourselves, we find things that we don't like. But deeper, 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 we find the fact that we are loved by you and that you are forming us and you are making us new. So would you do with that, do that with us individually and do that for us as a church. You've called us to be a light on a hill and we want to be that. So Father, help us do that, please. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.